Welcome to episode three of our series, Cool Agriculture. I'm Marcy Treadlong, and I'm Shermaine Lee. In this series, we're taking a deep dive into how growing the food we eat contributes to climate change. We look at how the world's two food superpowers, the U.S. and China, are coming up with innovations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from farming. And if they collaborate, can we get to net zero faster? In this third episode, we shift our focus from crops to livestock, specifically dairy products made from cows. We humans have eaten dairy products for centuries, but only recently did we realize the impact that cows are having on climate change. You know what surprises me, Charmaine? I find cows rather adorable. But from a climate perspective, they're kind of bad news, right?、Mm, they are very cute, but their burps produce methane, a potent greenhouse gas that can warm our planet 80 times faster than carbon dioxide. And raising cows for beef and dairy products becomes challenging if we want to get to net zero in agriculture. And livestock farming accounts for nearly a third of global methane emissions. In the U.S., each person eats as much as 37 kilograms or 81 pounds of beef each year. A full rack of ribs. The Baconator. Baconator is the ultimate bacon cheeseburger. Steak and eggs. Americans love meat. So we thought a good place to start this episode was in the U.S. And who better to talk to than a senior environmental scientist at the California Department of Food and Agriculture, who is based in the U.S. now, but grew up in another meat-loving country, Brazil. Her name is Dr. Roberta Franco. When I was growing up, even though I was my 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 family was from São Paulo city during the weekends. Or you know, in family vacations, I would get in contact with cows and、uh, livestock and、uh, farm animals in in all、uh, senses, and it always fascinated me how cows by eating pasture or other byproducts that are not good for human beings for consumption, how they could convert that that were completely unsuitable for humans to be. Fed on, and how they will produce milk and meat, which are one of the most valuable products for human consumption. That process that Roberta refers to, eating and digesting grass, is called enteric fermentation, and it's the root cause of methane emissions from cows. Okay, but how does that work? How do cow burps from digesting grass release methane? They have four stomach chamber. And the main one where the methane it's being produced inside of the animal is called the rumen, and there you have archaea that will break down really unusable fiber that a human or actually any other animal would would not take. It would bypass the digestive system 
and would end up on the end of, of, of the animal uh, has the same way that he came on the front. That's what happened in the room and is that magic that is the enteric fermentation where that fiber that did not have any value breaks down and it extracts the, the carbon, which is the energy out of that material. But the trade-off of that is that it produces methane. The enteric fermentation accounts for over 40% of global emissions from the livestock supply chain. And other ruminating animals like sheep and deer also produce methane the same way. But among them, people eat the most beef. And this is not to mention that as the world gets richer and the population grows, people are eating more milk and more cheese. We now produce over double the amount of beef than we did in the 1960s. Mm, that's right. And the U.S. is also a major producer for milk. While China consumes and produces less beef and milk compared to the U.S., it's catching up as the economy advances. So how can we humans reduce methane from cow burps? That's a very new area of research. One of the things you have been hearing the most is uh, people giving feed additives to cow. So such as, for example, the most famous one, I, I would believe it's seaweed. The seaweed has a compound that kind of inhibits those microorganisms that are producing methane on the rumen. So it is, it is a way that without much damaging the, the digestive process of the cow and of these ruminants, it's inhibiting significantly and uh, the methane production. Wow, who knew that seaweed could have such superpowers? No kidding. When I was growing up, it was one of my favorite snacks. Do you remember the salted seaweed snack I loved nibbling when I worked from home? <laughs> I do remember. My kids loved them. I know that it's nutritional and healthy, but I didn't know that red seaweed can help reduce methane emissions from cow burps. So how does that work? Well, I talked to Dr. Hermias Cabriab professor of animal science at UC Davis, who published research about it in 2021. But before he started explaining how it worked, he first told me about what brought him to study livestock and cows during his early years growing up in Eritrea, East Africa. Growing up, uh, I used to really enjoy um, milk and uh, animal source food and, and beef and all that because it wasn't available uh, as much as uh, one would like. Um, so it always um, made me think, you know, why why couldn't we have milk and cheese and you know all, all these good things that um, um, on a regular basis? Um, and, and so that's kind of sparked my interest in trying to figure out um how we can increase this, the, the productivity and, and and make it available but then so more stories start to come out about the contribution of livestock to the environment as well so trying to see how can we improve productivity but also uh, mitigate the emissions that come from uh, from animals as well dr kebriab then started looking at whether different feed additives could reduce the methane emissions from cow burps so this is a common way of, of doing things. 
a lot of people have done you know different type of plants to, to do that and in vitro you can see a lot of uh, uh, bioactives actually reduce the methane emissions but the issue is that in vivo like with real animals it doesn't always translate um so there was some excitement uh, uh about uh, uh, things like curry for example you know curry reduces emissions uh, substantially in vitro, but when you actually given it to the animals in vivo, it didn't work. His team didn't give up. Eventually, after testing a variety of feed additives, they stumbled across research from Australia saying wet seaweed could reduce methane emissions in the lab experiments. So Dr. Krebriab and his students decided to try adding seaweed into the feed of real animals to see if it really could reduce methane emissions. And and I was away at the time actually, and she called me and she said we're seeing like thirty forty percent reduction, and I thought, you know, this must be some mistake there. Usually, what happens is that you need more than what you use in the lab to get the effect. So I was like, must be some sort of malfunction. But she checked again, and you know, it was, it was actually it was real. And and then you know, as we increased the the dose, we saw that there was also an increase in reduction of emissions as well. Uh, so that was quite quite exciting. It turns out that Dr. Kebriab's research showed a 60% reduction in methane emissions from cows eating the red seaweed, and Penn State saw an 80% reduction. And then, you know, there's a number of companies have sprung up, and they are, a lot of startups have, uh, have started working with, with the seaweed. So there's already one formulation that has been approved in California. So a formulation called Brominata is now, is now uh, legal to sell and use for animals here. Hmm, the potential sounds huge. In an ideal world, we would want to feed all cows with red seaweed additives to slash their methane emissions. But doesn't that mean we have to grow a lot of red seaweed? So there are a couple of companies that are focusing on the bromoform, the active ingredient. On the seaweed, it's not just bromoform, there are other things as well. But the bromoform is the main one. So, so now we don't need to grow the seaweed, but you can just use the bromoform and stabilize it and make it available to, 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 to the animals. So instead of just feeding red seaweed to the cows, an extraction of bromoform could be sold as a feed additive to the farmers. But bromoform also has risks. The downside of bromoform is that it, is, um, it affects the ozone layer. And also, if it is given in high quantities, it could be a, a carcinogen as well. And, you know, this is all of this needs, needs to happen to then apply for approval to FDA or other regulatory bodies. And Dr. Kebriab said that this new idea has attracted a lot of interest from Chinese scientists. Because the Chinese government recently launched a plan to promote new diets for farm animals. And that includes using forage, or leftover crop residue after harvesting. In our own research, we did have a look at the mitigation practice to reduce enteric fermentation from livestock farming. And one is using the high quality of forage, for example, such as a core silurges. Uh, so by using very good forage, that can also reduce some GHG emissions in entire fermentation. That was Mei Anchan, Program Director and Senior Analyst at the Chinese NGO Innovative Green Development Program based in Beijing. 
She was talking about using corn or other crop residue, otherwise called forage, as feed for cows. The idea is gaining momentum. And uh, there are also some like uh, policy documents actually mentioned to or promote the use of this kind of uh, forage. In addition to the high quality of forage, there are also some other mitigation practices such as uh, feed additives. But motivating livestock farmers in China to make changes to their livestock practices has its challenges. In China, like the agriculture is dominated by the smallholder farmers because there are so many like smallholder farmers, and they might they probably if they want to take some like new uh, technologies or new practice to reduce uh, GHG emissions in livestock farming, they probably need to think about like the cost and benefits of these mitigation practices. But China's also focused on consolidating small farms into larger industrial farms, which might help lower costs, thereby creating funding for new feed additives. China has this uh, a policy they call cropland transfer system that allows like some smallholder farmers, uh, if they are not interested or in the agri- agriculture because they are moving to the cities, and they could transfer their land to some other people that are willing working on that. So in this process, they are able to consolidate the land and to make uh, a large-scale farms. The U.S. and China are both researching feed additives to reduce methane emissions from cow burps, with steady progress. But there is another component of livestock farming that creates methane emissions: animal manure. That's right. Animal droppings produce around 10% of all methane emissions from livestock farming. Luckily, rural farms in China have a long history of capturing this methane to produce a biogas that fuels their homes. Biogas is a mixture of methane, carbon dioxide, and other gases produced. After animal manure, alongside human sewage and crop residues, are put through a fermentation process in an oxygen-free environment. The machine they use is called an anaerobic digester. Once the biogas is produced, it can be used as a fuel to generate electricity. In Chinese, biogas is called zhaoqi, which means swamp gas or marsh gas in English. Biogas research started over a hundred years ago. When in the late 1920s, the first biogas plant using water pressure was introduced in Taiwan. To learn more about it, we decided to talk to Dr. Liu Ying, the former chief of China's Biogas Institute of the Ministry of Agriculture, to get more history on the history of biogas in China. It has this company. 呃，有它的这个培训体系，它它是编到。In the thirties, there were biogas schools across the country. Companies offered training classes and textbooks. At the time, companies targeted generating power to light lamps. Farmers cooked using firewood or crop residue, which they had enough at home, but had to buy oil to use lamps. So companies then promoted that they could turn on lights using manure. Without thinking up the house. 
The Second World War and China's Civil War curbed the development, but in the 1960s and 70s, things changed. The supply of firewood was tight, so some farmers started digging out the books about using biogas. The government took a closer look and decided to promote this throughout the whole country. They began putting thousands of biogas plants in rural areas to help with the energy shortages there. And then in the 1980s, biogas development became part of China's national strategic planning. And that is when Dr. Liu began leading the effort to promote and improve biogas use on farms. But this time, biogas wasn't just about lighting up rural farmhouses. At the time, we also pushed its use to sugar and wine factories. With state support, we turned the sewage from two factories in Sichuan province into biogas. This didn't just improve the wastewater management of these factories, but the biogas produced could be in manufacturing and produce half of the city's households for electricity. Since 2015, Dr. Liu said authorities started building massive biogas digesting plants on large-scale farms, and then sending that biogas to households through pipelines, similar to the way natural gas is transported. And this saved a lot of time for small-scale farms because they didn't have to manage their own biogas digesters at home. Dr. Liu said that centralizing the biogas capture. Also provides a more stable energy source, a win-win technology that reduces greenhouse gas emissions in two ways. If we don't collect the waste, it produces methane and carbon that warm the planet, and creating electricity from the waste reduces the demand for burning fossil fuel. Biogas presents a good alternative to natural gas. Currently, the LNG supply in China was mostly imported from Australia, Malaysia, and the U.S. until the Ukraine war started, when part of this was replaced by Russia and Central Asia. China is expanding the use of natural gas rapidly by building plants domestically and overseas. But if biogas, a renewable energy source, Can be used more extensively, then China can rely less on fossil fuels like coal and natural gas. So far, biogas only accounts for slightly over three percent of China's energy mix. But with more development, experts say that could increase to ten percent in the near future. Across the Pacific Ocean, in California. The use of biogas digesters has just started. State officials have only recently begun promoting the use of these digesters to livestock farmers. One of these programs incentivizes the the implementation of of anaerobic digesters in dairy farms. So that's called the Dairy Digester Research and Development Program. And I know China has several of these systems also in place, and I. Very happy <laughs> to see that the program distributes funding to California dairy companies and biogas developers to install anaerobic digesters that can reduce the methane released from dairy cattle manure. These programs were born after a Senate bill was passed into a law 
Back in 2016, it sets a legally binding target of reducing California's methane emissions of 40% below 2013 levels by 2030. Manure management is a big part of the effort for dairy and livestock industry. So once you have implemented this system, you need to have help also for continuing because the cost to maintain and and to and to continue operating this are still high. Our sister agency, the California Air Resource Board, has a program which several of our recipients have、uh, enrolled. It's called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard. So th- what that means is that is a mechanism that because this biogas that is being produced can displace fossil fuel from heavy duty trucks through this program. People can buy credits for the purchase of renewable natural gas. Hmm, that's right. Digester owners can earn carbon credits through this program called Low Carbon Fuel Standard. How does this work exactly? We talked to Matthew Harrison, California Air Resources Sports Industrial Strategies Division Chief, and he explained. So, biomethane from dairies、um, with operating digesters can be captured and sold as fuel into the LCFS market. Um, to generate credits, it can be sold to entities that are supplying higher carbon fuels for sale in California,、um, and the credits can be generated through either pipeline injection, direct use on-site in vehicles, or by generating electricity for electrical vehicle charging. Matthew said the program was met with great fanfare. We've seen a significant expansion in the number of dairies that are using digesters to capture biomethane.、Um, And a pretty significant growth in dairy biogas in California vehicles over the past several years, from less than I think、uh, about two million gallons equivalent in 2017 to over 50 million gallons equivalent today. Another program that dairy digester owners can participate in is California's carbon trading system called Cap and Trade. And what that does, it allows for projects to generate credits, offset credits、um, that can be sold to regulated regulated entities that are looking to demonstrate compliance with California's cap and trade regulation. So the offsets have to meet strict requirements.、Um, there's a, a handful of criteria, including that they be、uh, real, quantifiable, verifiable, permanent, enforceable, and additional to what would otherwise occur、um, in the absence of the projects. Portion of the the auction proceeds from 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 the cap and trade program are deposited into a state account, where the legislature can then appropriate those funds through the state budget process、um, for investments in the programs and projects that further reduce greenhouse gas emissions. While carbon credit trading and incentive systems in California have been operating for years. China is still trying to develop a model for livestock and dairy farms to use carbon credits for funding their emission-reducing projects. The Nature Conservancy's conservation and agriculture director in China, Ying Li, told us that carbon credit trading is one aspect that the U.S. and China could collaborate on. 美国的这种减排的呃理念。The concept of mitigation emerged in the U.S. much earlier. So many food and dairy companies has disclosed their greenhouse gas emissions for over ten years. 
but in China, they just started doing this for about two years. The U.S. carbon market has quite comprehensive regulations because it's been there for years. But for us in China, the government has to push a lot. In the future, the two countries can talk about how to design financial tools for livestock farms to transition and create a carbon market in this industry. As for the U.S., Dr. Liu told me that China's strong biogas experience can be a good reference for them as well. He said that China's rapid development of a biogas system was because authorities injected over 40 billion renminbi to build up the program. China used funds to develop training, production infrastructure, repair, and other promotional programs for biogas use. It's pretty clear that the U.S. and China could both benefit from collaboration, not only in their research, but also the tools that they use to fund and implement new methane mitigation programs for dairy farms. Hmm, definitely. Now that we understand how dairy farm cow burps and manure produce methane, and the programs the U.S. and China are implementing to mitigate these methane emissions, I think we can finally wrap up this episode. Although the process to get food on our table covers much more than agriculture, it seems growing our food alone takes up a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. We've looked at soil. Rice paddy fields and livestock farms so far, and the possible solutions that different stakeholders can take up. Hmm, that's right. From conservation agriculture, perennial crops to the use of biogas, the potential to fight climate change is massive. But the thing is, if we don't scale them up, their power will remain very limited. That's when international cooperation does the magic, right? We can see that some research and methods develop well when the U.S. and China actually work together. Political differences might stay, but hopefully, the two countries' goals of tackling global warming and climate change will be enough to refocus cooperative research again in this intersection of agriculture and greenhouse gas emissions. And as someone growing up in food paradise, Hong Kong, I really hope to see our food system, particularly agriculture, go green and sustainable soon. And on that note, we'll say goodbye to our listeners and move on to the next episode. I'm Marcy Trent Long, and I'm the executive producer of Sustainable Asia. Charmaine Lee and I are hosts and producers of this episode. Zach Chiang and Sam Li Xiaoyu are the associate producers, and Cole Chiu composed the music. A big thank you to our guests, Dr. Roberto Franco from California Department of Food and Agriculture, Matthew Harrison at the California Air Resources Board, Dr. Hermes Kebriab at UC Davis. Dr. Ying Li at the Nature Conservancy in China, and Dr. Liu Ying and Mei An Chen, both at the Institute for Global Decarbonization Progress in China. This podcast series is part of a Wilson Center China Environment Forum 
an Ohio State University initiative called Cultivating U.S. and Chinese Climate Leadership on Food and Agriculture. As a partner in this project, our team has loved digging into ag and climate issues with the support of the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center. Check out Wilson Center's website links in our show notes to read their excellent research on reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. and China from agriculture. Also, sign up for their highly informative webinar series on the many environmental issues impacting the two countries. It's a great opportunity to join the discussion to reduce the environmental footprint in the U.S. and China. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made by repurposed and recovered waste items. Thanks for listening. We're going to take a short break from Season 16 Cool Agriculture to bring you the first episode of a new Season 17 called The Global Plastic Treaty Negotiations. It's a fascinating look at the issues being discussed over the next two years as the United Nations countries convene in hopes to finalize a global plastic treaty agreement. Season 16 Cool Agriculture will come back again in June with a final episode looking at lab-grown meat and maybe a few episodes from partner podcasts on farming and climate change for your listening pleasure.